Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. This is January 5th, 2024. My name is Alex. I'm joined by my bestie. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. Welcome to the new year. Yes, I am actually really excited about 2024. Past couple of years were a little bit rough personally, but I, I just feel good about this year in general. I think it's it's going to be a little bit more of a, we're going to see more positive stuff happening in general this year. Well, now you've jinxed it. Oh, gosh. Now we're going to get hit by an asteroid. Oh, gosh. When that happens, you can blame Marianne. It's all my fault if that happens. Oh, no, don't be optimistic. <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm actually entirely on board with you. And one of our stories on the show today does deal with a dose of optimism from the TechCrunch crew. So we will talk about that in a little bit. But on today's show, rolling with that positive vibe, we are going to talk about in our deals of the week, what's going on with Fox Capital and Exponent, and then corporate venture capital's role in a potential crypto rebound. That is the positive note that I can't wait to bring up. Then we do turn the page a little bit and talk about some downsides, talking about layoffs and shutdowns at Front Desk and Countdown Capital, respectively. And then we'll wrap with some good news for both startup support in Israel and support for the Palestinian people from tech. Marianne, it's going to be a great show, but we are going to start off with a very interesting situation involving Ruth Fox Blader, Fox Capital, and also the fact that she's still investing for her old job. What's going on? Yeah. So Ruth Fox Blader, she was a partner at Anthemus Group for almost seven years before she decided she wanted to venture out on her own. Um, And it's not it's not unusual for a partner to leave a firm and start their own fund. But this is unusual because she's left Anthemus, but she's still investing out of the fund that she was hired to manage. And so she's doing it as a sub advisor for Anthemus. So she's she's managing that vehicle she was hired to run seven years ago, which is a little bit unusual to me. And once all that capital is deployed, then she says she's going to start to fundraise to make new investments. So for those of you who are not familiar, Ruth is is brilliant. She spoke on the TechCrunch Disrupt stage in 2022. She was just awesome. And um, she, Anthemus is a fintech-focused VC firm based out of London. So I'm not shocked that she decided to venture out on her own. I think she'll do great. But but yeah, I did find this whole sort of the circumstances around her departure to be a little unusual. Okay. So it took up until about 10 seconds ago for me to have an idea about why this happened. Because I read the story, I prepped for the show, I thought about it, and I was just like, what is going on? This makes no sense. And then I remembered the demise of OpenView. What happened at OpenView? Well, a couple of key people left and the whole thing dissolved. There are often, for example, in LPGP agreements, Mm -hmm. key person requirements. Like you can't have the person we're most excited about investing in the fund leave because then we don't want to be part of it anymore. And you set this all up in advance. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, Marianne, and this is a a hypothesis. This is not even a rumor. This is just my thought. I wonder if Ruth has stayed at Anthemus through the end of the current fund to avoid triggering a similar provision there. But she's also like, the moment we're done though, we're done. I do think there is something there related to maybe contractual obligation of, of sorts. So I, I think you're on target, but it sounds like they're on good terms. Obviously, Anthemus is has an economic interest in that vehicle still. I don't know if it's going to be an LP in the, the firm when it starts investing in new companies, because that would be interesting because it almost seems like they'd be competing against each other at that point for deals, right? So it's all a little different. And Anthemus, you know, had a weird year last year. I covered their 
what they described as a restructuring, which was technically a, a layoff of about 16 people or almost 30% of its staff, which is also a little bit unusual. Less unusual this year, though. I mean, right. we have been seeing a lot of people leave VC. A lot of firms begin to struggle, some soft fundraising numbers. And I think that there's a general anticipation that we're going to see quite a number of fund, sorry, firm shutdowns this year, quiet or announced. We'll have to see. But I think that's going to become more common. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But at the, at the time, which I think was last April, it wasn't wasn't something I've been hearing a lot about. And so, you know, and behind the scenes, I have I have heard that there's been some kind of a little bit of internal strife at Anthemus, some, I think, discontent, perhaps with the way some things have been run, but I'm not going to get into all that right now. But anyway, Ruth did bring over an investment associate from Anthemus, as well as a former principal, Kyle Perez and Sophie Winwood. And so she says she hopes to start investing in new companies in 2025. And that brings us to our other bit of, I think it's also fintech focused venture capital news, which is that Exponent has a new fund. And I believe, Marianne, it's about 50% larger than its fund one. Yeah, Exponent Founders Capital. Um, so they kind of really, they're essentially emerged from stealth today. They've been around for a couple of years, but they announced that they raised $75 million in capital commitments. And they're not actually... F- exclusively fintech focused, um, ah, okay. which is interesting because the the two managing partners and co-founders do come from very strong fintech backgrounds, having worked at Plaid, Robinhood, Ramp, for example. But um, they actually invest in SaaS, enterprise SaaS, fintech infrastructure, go-to-market software companies. So not just fintech, but I don't know, I really love this story. I mean, I was familiar with Charlie Ma, who's one of the co-founders you know, for a while he worked at, he was one of the first business hires at Plaid at Ramp and then went on to Alloy. Really nice guy. Um, and he met the other co-founder, uh, Mahdi Raza. Actually, they were kind of on opposite sides of the negotiating table when they were at, um, I think it was Plaid and Robinhood respectively. And that's ah. how they met. And so then they they separately went on to become angel investors and then decided to team up and start this firm in 2021. So they quietly raised in 2021. Let's see, I think it was 30, was it $30 million? Uh, no, 50 million. Ah, 50 million in its first fund, November 2021. They invested in about 40 companies, they said, out of that fund. And now they're looking to back about 20 to 30 new ones out of this fund. Yes, a larger fund, 75 to now 125 under management. And according to TechCrunch's reporting, they're looking to put between $500,000 and $5 million into a check, targeting 5 to 10% ownership in companies that they back. So if you are building an early stage company in one of those areas, one more fund to keep in mind as you pitch. Now, Marianne, I want to put on my, my happy hat and talk about why I think one particularly out of fashion part of the tech world could have a good year. It's crypto. Just in case mm-hmm. anyone was curious. Uh, we all know that crypto had a really big 2021 and then it had a couple of years really, really far afield from a couple of different hype cycles. I mean, there was a moment when AI took off that everyone was joking that VCs were dropping their their crypto moniker and moving to become AI experts. It became kind of a meme. But I do think that the winds are shifting a little bit. And here's what I'm thinking. We have seen in the last couple of months the value of major crypto tokens, be it Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, whatever, greatly appreciate. And we've also seen a commensurate rise in value of total trading activity. And because a lot of exchanges in the market, your Coinbase's, your Binance's, eat off of trading revenues, historically at least, I think we're going to see a lot more money 
at those exchanges. And that means, finally getting to the point here, that we could see a rebound in corporate venture capital activity as a result of that, because historically, Coinbase Ventures has been one of the most, if not the most active investor in the Web3 startup space. And so I think that there's a number of factors coming together here that paint a much more bullish picture for Web3 in 24. I think you're right, Alex. Obviously, we we see that the price of Bitcoin went up a lot. I think this was the highest it's been in a while this week, reaching or topping 45,000. 45, 47K, somewhere in there. I forget the exact time, yeah. point, but it's around 45 as we record. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is huge. And I feel like, you know, the whole FTX, SBF debacle really kind of hurt crypto in 2022, 2023. Not just that company. There were a couple of companies, right? Binance, others that, that just sort of put... Um, what's the word, a damper on the space. But I feel like people are starting to move on from that and starting to see, okay, crypto is it's not just because there's some bad players in the space. It's not all bad. There's still potential here. Some some bad players in the space, Marianne. That is, <laughs> I do appreciate it when you break out your British understatement and just kind of bring <laughs> that to bear. Um, I want to throw on some more good news. Fred Wilson over at Union Square Ventures, one of my favorite um, and kind of the, one of the original, I think, venture capital bloggers out there, talked about how he thinks this year is going to be the year of regulatory clarity for crypto. Mm-hmm. That Finally. has been, well, <laughs> yeah. the, the question is, what kind of regulation and who's happy? Yeah. We don't know. <laughs> but at a minimum, clarity by itself will have some value attached to it. And there's a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, I, I am talking to Jackie on the um, TechCrunch Plus team, also listen to Chain Reaction Podcast, it's fantastic, about the Bitcoin spot ETFs that are coming out. And so there does seem to be quite a lot of factors that I think could yield a pretty good year for an out-of-favor sector. Will we see what we saw in 2021? No. But I do think at least we can bring in some startups from the cold and hopefully keep some of the early stage companies alive that may have otherwise just petered out, run out of money. You know, I mean, that's happening a lot lately. Yeah, it is. And I think I think it was really smart of you to kind of tie in this rebound that we're seeing in crypto to how we might see more venture dollars flowing into crypto startups, you know? So that's why you're so awesome, Alex, because you connect the dots in a way that not everybody can. Little do people know to connect the dots. All you have to do is overly caffeinate in the morning and then panic when you don't have an idea for your morning column and then ideas will come. Well, it, it, it made, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, Hey, I know there's a lot of people that are skeptical about crypto, but, and I admit I was one of them, but I do think there is potential there. I do think that we're going to see a good year and hopefully we've weeded out a lot of those bad players and the reg- new regulation is going to help keep things a little bit more on the up and up. Uh, one last note about this, because I think everything you said is correct. I mean, we also got through the FTX lawsuit, uh, sorry, the SBF slash FTX court case. And we also had the Binance resolution to some degree last year. So that's totally dead on. The thing that I'm impressed by is the tenacity of the crypto faithful. Yeah. No, they're dedicated. They're definitely loyal and and it's nice to see that, right? I like it. It's like the the opposite of like music fandom when they're like, oh, their last record was trash. That band sucks now. Bitcoin goes down like 50% and everyone's like, eh, you know, now I just can't eat lunch. It's fine. I can buy more Uh, and then it'll go back up. (laughs) Don't forget, Marianne, this is good for Bitcoin. We are going to take a very short break. And then when we come back, layoffs and shutdowns, what's going on at Front Desk and Countdown Capital. But first, a short break. Okay, so we had our sunny side up. 
We're going to put that away, put on our sad hat, and we're going to talk about what's going on at Front Desk, which, Marianne, I'm not going to lie. When I read your story, I thought it was a different company in the same space, but it turns out it was a different company in the same space. So what's Front Desk and what's going on? Yeah, so this was a scoop for me this week, as was Ruth Fox Blader's new firm. So can I had say, to say that again. Just can you uh, can you say it one more time? I kind of have to brag a little bit sometimes. It was a scoop. I got it. I had a scoop. Two scoops, which is not week. a fun kind of scoop, right? Though I don't like, I don't like when my scoops are related to layoffs. But what happened? Um, Front Desk is a company, or was perhaps is a better way to describe it, a short-term rental provider in the prop tech space that laid off its entire workforce on Tuesday. As I understand it from the folks who were laid off, it was a two-minute Google Meet call, and it was about 200 people affected, including full-time, part-time, and contractors. And they really weren't told too much other than that the company was was seeking a state receivership, which is similar to Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but not quite the same because it has you know, a lot of real estate assets. And what's one of the things that struck me most about all of this was how you can tell that the company really just wasn't being realistic about what was happening because seven months ago, they acquired another startup called Zen City. As early as two months ago, they have job postings on LinkedIn, including one for a chief of staff that were still there as of Tuesday. So I, I, I get the vibe that the executives were just really thinking this was not going to happen. And and from what I hear from the employees that were let go, um, the company was trying to raise more capital but investors were were not buying it. So they, they couldn't raise more money. They had no choice. They had to shut down. Yeah. When the cash goes to whatever the effective zero number is for your business, everything stops. Cash is business oxygen. And if you can't breathe, you humans die. Businesses apparently go into state receivership. It does sound like they had what they thought was a promising funding round coming together. And a lot of things they could kind of build up to that and then afterwards, and then that didn't come together. What we don't know at this juncture, at least, is how realistic was the expectation that the funding round would close so they could keep going. But this is a business model point. But, but roll with me here, Marianne. Short-term rental providers have to secure real estate. They have to manage it. They have to kit it out so people can actually stay there. Then they have to advertise it. And they have to compete with other short-term rental options, which range from Airbnb to long-term stay hotels. It seems like an enormously capital-intensive way to get into a highly competitive market that does have quite a lot of regulatory overhang to eke out thin margins on a non-tech product. So why were there so many of these companies backed by venture capital dollars? What, what am I missing in this picture that made this seem at one point to be a viable way to deploy capital? You know, I think maybe a lot of them, this one started in 2017. A lot of them started before, I think, rents and just housing prices in general went nuts. You know, during, I think, the pandemic really affected housing markets everywhere and and the short housing shortage and the low interest rates. And so rents went up, home prices went up. And so, I mean, that's my guess. I think they just didn't really think long term about what would happen if the market changed or turned. Maybe they just didn't project enough to like factor that into their models. And and in front desk case, what I hear is that they were they were looking to try to move into management, like building management, which I've seen another 
I think it was Zeus Living tried to do that as well. And it died yeah. or reportedly died a couple of months back as well. I think they realized it wasn't working. But, you know, they they also, from what I understand, were not making rent on a number of their properties and pissed off the landlords, which made things even worse. And then I think they were charging too much, you know, asking too much for the rentals as well. And people are just like, you know, not wanting to pay. Yeah. Well, I wonder who the target market was on the consumer side. Like who are they trying to rent things to? Because there is a market, for example, um, corporations will often have a handful of apartments in certain cities if they have to dispatch one member or another to that city. Um, it's easier to have a couple of places in New York. You can stash an executive for a couple months versus going out and finding one every time you need to bring someone to a particular city. But those relatively high dollar, you know, low concern with cost contracts probably aren't so big. And so at that point, you're just kind of trying to sell the digital nomads, I guess. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I wrote about another company, like this is the one exception I feel like in this space that seems to be doing okay back in October called Any Place. And, they, and they're doing something very similar where they, they offer people furnished rentals and kind of more longer term, they're like a minimum of, of 30 days. And so they just raised more money in October and they seem to be growing. So they that company feels like an exception to a lot of these others that haven't done well because Front Desk is not alone. As I mentioned, there was Zeus Living, there was uh, Wander Jaunt, Stay Alfred, Lyric, Domeo, and actually Front Desk bought the assets of some of those failed companies, which is kind of ironic because now it's joining the ranks of the failed companies in the space. I, I mean, we've seen that before. I mean, there was some consolidation in the scooter market, for example, and now, as far as I can tell, Lime is kind of the last company standing there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to talk about Lime because whenever I do, their PR team yells at me. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, mostly we saw some consolidation in that space and then mostly failures. And I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked if we see that in kind of like the e-commerce roll-up players that raised a lot of money to mm -hmm. go after Amazon a couple of years ago. I mm -hmm. bet there'll be consolidation there. We've already seen this in the 15-minute delivery space, which is mostly full of I would say smoking craters in the ground where cash and optimism have landed and burned. Maybe actually that's an interesting indicator, Marianne. If there is rapid consolidation inside of a space with players being bought because they're dying, maybe we should just view that as like more like contagion than salvation. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, because we have seen that play out more than once. Yeah. And sometimes you have to count down to the end of your capital. And sometimes countdown capital capitalizes on their own countdown because they're done, Marianne. What's going on there? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So Aria had her own scoop with this countdown capital announced this week that it would, it was going to shut down and yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it was kind of a sad, a sad story. Really. Uh, the founder and solo GP is uh, Jay Malik. Basically he said that funding industrial startups is not inefficient enough to justify our existence. And he, he was very blunt and explaining his reasoning for shutting down the firm, which I also thought was interesting. He said that larger multi-stage venture firms are best positioned to generate strong returns on the most valuable industrial startups. This just made me sad because it's like a smaller firm that really seemed to have potential and trying to invest in this space. But he was basically admitting it was just really hard to compete with the bigger venture players. Yes, I want to throwing that my understanding of his comments about the the inability or inefficiency of investing in industrial hard tech was more predicated on his funds strategy viz the market than mm. investing in that category overall large oh, yeah um, right but you know that's my take on Jay's, the tribe's perspective 
The thing that really stuck out to me was his discussion in his letter he sent to you know his team about this. And he was talking about how he thought they could essentially be a very competitive fund. They could fight for deal flow, fight for inclusion in hot rounds and so forth. But it, it turned out that that was really tough because multi-stage firms would come in and offer a 50 to 100% quote price difference at the pre-seed and seed stage, because in his view, that's not super material to a billion dollar fund, mm-hmm. but to a small fund, that's the difference between being able to write the check or not, or being right. priced out or not, or being a lead or not. And so it really does seem that some of these multi-stage funds are not consciously or on purposely inflating seed deal values, but they just don't care as much. And so it's making the actual seed players struggle. And, you know, the market will always sort things out in, in the long term. But, you know, I saw some data f- about Q4 2023 from PitchBook that showed that median seed deal values in the U.S. hit a record high last year. And mm-hmm. so I wonder if this that we're seeing here from the demise of Countdown and the decision to shut it down, by the way, didn't fail. He's returning capital and just kind of right, right. calling it quits. I, I wonder if that's why seed deals are so expensive and also why Countdown's kind of out in the same stroke. Yeah, I mean, I I think probably so. I think it is hard for these smaller firms to compete when you're dealing with much larger players with with deeper pockets. And it kind of boils down to a few different factors. And I think part of it, too, is the startups themselves, you know, because do they have to take the capital from this firm or do they have to take from, the, you know, it's a tough call too. you know, right? I, I don't envy any anybody in this situation, but I don't know. And sorry if I mispronounced the name. I'm not sure if it's Jai or, or Jay, but I could feel kind of just his disappointments or his sadness in what, how everything had transpired. And I, I appreciated his candor. Well, we, we, we got the message and then broke the story. I don't think he was particularly happy about that, but I do no. appreciate that. No, he didn't send to us was candorous. Well, yeah. And I appreciate yeah. his candor, at least in communicating a, about it to others. Yes. Which we <laughs> then got to learn from and then we can bring to, to everyone who's with us today. I, mm, I was just talking to Tim on the TechCrunch Plus team about a little town in Washington where there is a kind of confluence of battery focused hard tech investments right now. And it just reminded me about how distributed a lot of this work is. And so I just hope that like, well, distributed and also critical. And so I I just hope that what happened to Countdown isn't representative of other folks trying to invest in serious, hard industrial tech, because we do need a lot of that here, frankly. And so I'm disappointed for a VC here, which is rare for me because I know me too. What's our, what's our rule? No <laughs> crying for people richer than you. That's rule one on equity. <laughs> I kid. But yeah. I do think because it is so capital intensive, it does make it harder than other spaces, right? Other, other industries. So applaud them for trying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Marianne, I had more to say about the, the price differential, but we have more to get through. So let's put down that and pick up something else. Israel, which we all know is currently fighting with Hamas, which has impacted its technology industry. One thing that the Israeli government is doing is putting together a kind of like relief package. And I thought it was done in an interesting fashion. Mm-hmm. So according to the FT, the Israeli government is essentially putting together a $100 million facility over several tranches that will match private investment into existing Israeli startups and the money from the government won't have to be repaid unless the company becomes profitable, which is funny because startups aren't. So it's kind of, it's almost like free money, but tied to private capital to ensure that it's not poorly allocated. And I think they put out about 40, 45 million of it so far. So Marianne, in terms of keeping things afloat, I think it's quite smart. 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, according to the article, they've paid out about 41 million so far. And the condition is to be able to get access to this emergency funding is that the startups have to find matching funds from the private sector, as you pointed out. I think it's definitely admirable of of the country, the government and and investors as well to try to help keep the startup ecosystem there alive. Definitely it's hard to keep operating as you want to as a company, as a startup when you're in the middle of a war and everything around you is being impacted. And a, a number of people, I think it was like 10 to 15 percent I read in the story of workers in the tech sector had been called up for military service as well. So yeah, I was surprised that 41 million had already been deployed. Yeah. It was fast. Well, I mean, keep in mind that when we talk about, you know, growing tech scenes, Israel's has really come into its own, I would say in the last, oh man, I'm going to butcher this timeline, 10, 15 years, it really feels like. And there was a massive boom in investment, especially in Israeli cybersecurity companies through the kind of 2021 period. There was some interesting data from uh, Nadav Lev over at YL Ventures that we have uh, over on TechCrunch Plus recently. There was $1.89 billion invested in Israeli cybersecurity companies last year. That was 71 different rounds. That was down 41% from 2022's figure, which was $3.22 billion, and down from $8.8 billion in 2021. So I think that the money that the Israeli government is putting to work here would have been useful regardless. But mm-hmm. I do think as well as an emergency measure is a pretty intelligent way to defend what has become a, a kind of key plank in the national economy there. And so you want to make sure that that's up and running for you once you get the security stuff sorted out. Yeah. The Financial Times also reported that there's there's actually been a decline in the number of startups that are being founded in Israel each year, which dropped from about 1,400 in 2014 to around 600 in 2022. That statistic surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe a little surprising. That was surprising because that's more than half. But maybe like this initiative is also just to help ensure that the companies that are there, you know, don't shut down or fail due to a lack of funds related to the war. Yeah. Elsewhere in the region, there has been a lot of discussion about what has happened to the Palestinian tech ecosystem. We're not making any sort of political comments on the show whatsoever, so please don't take anything that way. But there is a cool new group out there called Tech for Palestine that's bringing together um, engineers, investors, and kind of other folks in the tech sector to try to find a way to help the Palestinian people. And I thought it was a really cool idea. Small group so far, clearly kind of like a a loose collective, if you will, Marianne, Mm -hmm. but good to see that people People are trying to reach out and make sure that everyone has as good of a shot as they can. Inside of tech, there has been uh, a lot of discussion of the conflict between Israel, Hamas, and the impacts on both Israeli and Palestinian citizens. I was just encouraged to see people coming together and trying to work towards more harmony, more care, and hopefully to ameliorate some of the I mean, the clear negative impacts of war. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Palestine doesn't have the size tech ecosystem that Israel does, but it was growing in its own way. There was apparently a a lot more companies that had either that were hiring like freelance engineers out of the region or some that had had set up maybe satellite offices, I believe. And so the war has really devastated, obviously, what has existed there. And I think uh, this organization called Tech for Palestine, which was founded by Paul Begar, again, don't know if I butchered his name. He's the founder of a company also called Circle CI. I think Paul is just trying to, to help bring a voice to people who support 
Palestine in a way that hasn't been formalized. And he's encouraging them to build open source projects, tools, and data to help others in the industry advocate for the Palestinian people. Yes. And let's just hope that 2024 is a year in which we see the end of several wars versus more bubbling up as we have in the last couple of years. It has been sad to watch and it's just sad. Anyways, um, that's the end of the show for today. On that particular note, we were shooting for some positivity there, seeing people work together. But the good news is, is that Equity will be back next week. We'll be here on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. As always, we love you guys. Thank you so much. As a small reminder, we did have a number of excellent shows in the Christmas through end of the year period. Three, in fact. So if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to those, we have interviews, we have rundowns. It is an absolute jam. And if you want even more of Equity, in the meantime, we're Equity Pod on X and Threads, not Twitter. I keep almost saying that. And we're also TechCrunch Pods on TikTok. If you are a TikTok person, All right, we're back on Monday. Goodbye. Bye. Happy New Year, everyone. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.